and I got further into the book and it said uh, most people stay the same or get worse and there's a few occasional lucky people uh, that get better and and I remember thinking to myself you know, I'm 19 here and I feel like I'm 90 there's no way in hell I'm going to live like this for the rest of my life and and I remember I got home I got on my uh, road bike my triathlon bike and I rode down my street and I remember I was crying a little bit and I said to myself I don't give a damn what I got to do about my final answer to this hmm. I'm Dr. Paul Hamburg of UpperCervicalDocs.com and today I'm interviewing Dr. Drew Hall of Redondo Beach, California He is an upper cervical evangelist and dedicated practitioner of the Blair Technique and when he's not correcting patients atlas subluxations, he's the president of the Blair Society in this interview, he tells the story of how he was introduced to upper cervical, how an epiphany during a walk home led to him enrolling in chiropractic school, about his early days in practice, he reveals a few case studies, and much more. I hope you enjoy this interview. For more like this, go to UpperCervicalDocs.com. I was born in the East San Francisco Bay Area in Walnut Creek. Uh, lived in the same house my whole life till I... Uh, flew the coupe at 18, or actually 20, and uh, went to UC Davis and uh, went to school there for three years. And uh, let's see, I think about eight months prior to graduating from there, I was walking home from school one day and I had the little voice in my head say, You aren't supposed to be a geologist, you're supposed to be a chiropractor. <laughs> and uh, that little epiphany I had was so strong, I literally. Uh, went home. I just registered for all of my classes for the upcoming quarter, and uh, I called back in, canceled all those classes, signed up for organic chemistry, biology, and a few of the other prerequisites to get into chiropractic college, and without telling my parents, and uh, and there I was on my way. Um, so that was a, the quick b briefing of my upbringing. <laughs> Uh, I have a sister, um, obviously two parents who are still married, uh, two great parents. I had a, a great upbringing, and I've often lamented the fact how uh, being in practice, I feel like I kind of grew up in a bubble because uh, in practice, I it's, it's just amazing to me how many people come in who have had been abused as ch children or have been raped or how many women would come in that told me their uh, husband knocked them around and to have uh, grown up in a, a, a very loving, nurturing environment uh, home life-wise. Um, I think it's uh, been a, a strong backbone uh, for my career in chiropractic and as you know being a upper cervical doctor you don't exactly uh, walk with the crowd and and in doing so, you better have a strong backbone, and I, I credit a lot of um, my internal drive and um, machinery inside towards uh, uh, my parents. What did your parents do? Uh, my father was an engineer. Uh, he worked for a sanitation district. I won't tell you what we called him growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my, my mom was a substitute teacher uh, for, I don't know, five or ten years, and uh, mostly was a housewife, a darn good housewife. Yeah, uh, I think she's a dying breed in in uh, today's society, especially down here in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. But uh, we obviously it was just Thanksgiving, and and uh, actually it's not a tradition. It's the first Thanksgiving we've done this, but uh, everyone had to say something as we went around the table what we were thankful for, and of course my uh, thing that I was thankful for was the parents that I had uh, growing up, and still have. My wife thinks I'm a little crazy because I give them a call about once a day, and she's like, my God, you have two kids and a wife and two practices, and you still talk to your parents every day? What is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a thing I usually say to people when they say they talk to their parents once every month, I say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> how, how, so anyway. How just, long have you been married? Uh, eight years. Eight years. Um, no, I take that back. I've been together eight years. We got... I'm going to get murdered for this. Oh, yeah, and this is this. being recorded. Uh, five years. <laughs> five years. Okay, five years. Does her Is she from that area as well? No, she actually was born, uh, or she wasn't born. She grew up uh, close to the fountainhead of chiropractic, uh, Fairfield, Iowa, which is about, I think, about a three-hour drive from Davenport, Iowa. Born in Santa Barbara. Well, what exactly was going on on that walk home that uh, it popped into your head that you needed to be a chiropractor? Well, I think I, I can blame this one on Dr. Forrest's wife. Uh, two weeks prior to having that epiphany, uh, I was in Dr. Forrest's office getting checked, and after I was checked, I walked back out to the front office to pay, obviously, and... Uh, she said, you know, Drew, have you ever thought about being a chiropractor? And I said, I thought to myself, well, yeah, I've thought about it, but three more years of school, which looking back was kind of stupid because it's <laughs> the most rewarding thing I think any human being can have as a job, but uh, that was my objection, I think. I was like, I've been in college for four years, and let's get on with it. <laughs> um, but I would say that uh, she planted the seed, and and uh, maybe on a subconscious level, that ate away at me for two weeks, and and uh, because I didn't put too much thought in it after that. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those things that hit me out of the blue, and and it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was a really, really strong impulse, obviously, for me to to go home and say, you know what, I'm canceling all my classes and sign up for prereqs to chiropractic college. Yeah. And then obviously, which I haven't talked about yet. Um, I had a, a a pretty powerful experience with the upper cervical procedure, which, so. Um, well, go ahead and tell us about how. Well, was. tell us how you learned about chiropractic to begin with. Um, well, I'll tell you the story from the beginning. Um, it started actually two two and a half years prior to getting under upper cervical care. I was a, a junior in in high school, and I was on the baseball team. and And after practice one day, a buddy of mine. Uh, we got in a little wrestling match like uh, boys do, and uh, he picked me up and turned me completely upside down on, on dropped me on my head from about three feet off the ground, and I heard a <laughs> in my neck, and, and the first thought you have is, my God, I hope I'm not paralyzed, and I kind of rolled over and and uh, thought to myself, no, I can feel my feet, and okay, that's a good sign. I stood up and, and walked around a little bit, and and I didn't have any pain, and hey, I wasn't taught anything about that your spine has anything to do with your health, and I was a typical male who who did all sorts of stupid things growing up trauma-wise, and I figured nothing had happened, and 
and went on with the rest of the day, went to sleep. Uh, woke up the next morning, and that was pretty much in the rear view mirror. Um, and over about a six-month period, I slowly started uh, having headaches, not every day, um, but, you know, two or three times a week, and uh, falling to sleep at night every now and again was a little difficult. It took about an hour or two, and, and as things progressed, uh, the headaches started getting worse, and by six months, my sinuses completely uh, swelled shut, uh, I had a constant pain at the base of the skull uh, for the next two years. Uh, after about a six-month period following the trauma, I, uh, for about two years, took oh three or four hours every night to go to sleep. Not some nights; it became an every night sort of event. Mm-hmm. Uh, senior year in school, started noticing uh, reading comprehension-wise, cognitively. I just wasn't quite the way that I used to be. Still passed my classes because I had to have a 2.0 to play sports, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as time went on, I knew something really, really was wrong, and I kind of kept it to myself and did what most patients say in a chiropractic office. Is I kept telling myself I thought it would go away. And, uh, and it, it got to a point where I was walking home, another walking home from school episode, walking home from school one day and I had the thought if I've got to live like this for two more years I'll probably kill myself mm. and uh, that was kind of an, a shocker it's like wait a minute I just have that thought I just really did have that thought and uh, that was the impetus to me telling my parents and uh, so told my mom and dad and actually no at that point I still didn't tell my parents I tried to uh, pick up triathlons I think it was my last ditch effort to prove to myself that I really wasn't sick and that if I just did some sports activity that'd be fine and and I did uh, a few triathlons and I think about the third one it was just a mini triathlon you know like a 500 yard swim a 12 mile bike and a 5k run but I literally I couldn't finish the run because I was just toast (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it was on the car ride home from that triathlon I pretty much spilled, spilled the beans to my parents and and I think one of the things out of my mom's mouth was, how come you didn't tell us about this earlier? And the reason I didn't say anything earlier is because I thought it would go away. Yeah. That's what I kept telling myself, but it didn't. Yeah. And uh, so to make a really long story short, uh, I started doing some research, and I came a- across a book uh, titled Chronic Fatigue Syndrome slash Fibromyalgia. At this point, I was in junior college, and I had no idea what those two things meant. <laughs> uh, but I, I read through the book, and, and there were some case testimonies in there, and, and the stories were me. And I got further into the book, and it said uh, most people stay the same or get worse, and there's a few occasional lucky people uh, that get better. And, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm 19 here, and I feel like I'm 90 there's no way in hell I'm going to live like this for the rest of my life. And, and I remember I got home, I got on my uh, road bike, my triathlon bike, and I rode down my street, and I remember I was crying a little bit, and I said to myself, I don't give a damn what i got to do, but I'm going to find an answer to this. Hmm. And uh, in the back of that book was a support group, and uh, my mom called up a support group in San Francisco, and, and the lady that she had talked to was a homeopath, uh, recommended a homeopathic doctor, which was about 30 minutes from the house. And so I uh, went and saw this lady. Actually, I just left out the best part of the whole story. My uh, <laughs> parents spent a whole heck of a lot of money uh, 
you know, I was a typical average American household. We went to the medical doctor first, right? Right. And uh, I, I was basically told that it was all in my head, and that's what led the journey to that book and then the homeopath. And, uh, and I went and saw the homeopath, and she sat me down for like an hour and, and uh, asked me all these, as far as I was concerned, crazy questions. I remember thinking to myself halfway through, what is this lady getting at? And uh, through now at this point, I'd never put two and two together. I never put being dropped on my head and the problem I was having as a, a possible cause. But she uh, uncovered through all of her questioning the dropped on the head episode, and uh, and I and I thought to myself, my God, yeah, that is kind of when it started. And and I always tell the story to all of my patients to let them know I I've been where most of them are, mm-hmm. but I I say that I, I'll respect this lady till the day I die because what she said at the end of her consultation was you know Drew I think I can help you but I think you'll be better served by seeing this man hmm. and she gave me Dr. Tom Forrest's uh, business card and uh, in today's world I unfortunately I think a great percentage of doctors and that goes not only chiropractors but across the board may have their pocketbook and has a greater interest than maybe the the outcome of their their patient's well-being, and and that's why I said that I uh, respect her tremendously for sending me on to Doctor Forrest. And uh, right, I got home from the the homeopath appointment, and uh, and I of course told my mom what had transpired and where she wanted me to go. And and the first thing out of my mom's mouth was because Doctor Forrest was another thirty-five minute drive from from the house, and she said, "Well, there's thirty chiropractors in Walnut Creek. Why don't you go <laughs> see one of them?" And I always make the joke, it's one of the, maybe one or two things that my mom's been wrong about my whole life. And I'm glad <laughs> that I didn't listen to her and went to Dr. Forrest. Uh, but I made the drive down there, and, and uh, it was probably the most pivotal thing, not probably, that was the most pivotal decision I ever made in my entire life because uh, uh, he corrected my atlas and it totally transformed my whole life, mentally, spiritually, physically. And uh, one to have gone through the healing process upper cervically, and then num- it's uh, it's very easy uh, being in practice and and being able to look at a patient in the eye when they're going through a repair process, or they may not be feeling too well, and and you run all the objective tests on them, and and they show that they're in alignment, and being able to look them right in the eye and say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I know you feel the way that you do. But uh, you're okay on the test today, and and uh, you're just gonna have to hang in there and let Nate do his job. Um, I think one of the big problems that we have within upper cervical, or within our profession, why we don't have a lot of people doing upper cervical, is we're we're stuck in this uh, symptom treatment model. I mean, I look at my education at Cleveland, and I, I listen to a lot of chiropractors out there. I just had one in the other day, and and just the way that they look at chiropractic is from a, a symptom treatment model. And as you know, upper cervical is about removing nerve interference and leaving the darn thing alone when the objective tests show that it's clear regardless of how that person is feeling. So I was just getting into that uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I went through that process because I, I think it gives me the determination and practice to be, like I said, to be able to look at that patient's eye and and tell them to hang in there. <laughs> you know, I definitely want to come back to that because that is one thing that uh, 
unfortunately makes you uh, rather unique, even in upper cervical, that you're willing to tell a patient that, um, c- you know, come what may. <laughs> but so I definitely want to come back and ask you about that specifically. But uh, okay, your experience with Dr. Forrest, was that your only experience with chiropractic? Had you never been to a chiropractor before that? Never before. Wow. In fact, that brings up a pretty uh, interesting story. Uh, I was prior actually to being dropped on my head. I had a couple of buddies uh, that showed up at school one day and they both had uh, one of those neck braces on and and I said, what the heck are you guys doing? And, of course, I won't tell you exactly what I said to them, but I called them a wimp and a couple of other things. And they said, oh, my chiropractor gave me this. And, and I said, well, what a, oh, I think I probably told them they were idiots for going to a chiropractor. And, you know, I was ignorant like most of the people out there. Oh, that's my cell phone. And, uh, and anyway, so I asked my buddy, I said, well, what exactly does your chiropractor do? And uh, he said, well, he takes my head and he turns it to the left as far as it will go and then, turns a little further and cracks it and then turns it the other way a little as far as it'll go and then a little further and cracks it and I remember thinking to myself my god if that's what chiropractors do I sure as hell don't want to go to one <laughs> so did anyway, now did you note, think that sorry I'm I'm one of tangents we might be here till midnight <laughs> oh when you went through school did, were you a more open-minded or were you like no i know exactly what i'm gonna do and you know I, i've got the blinders on and i'm 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 hidden right i know what exactly what i'm gonna do well i tend to be like that with most things in my life but i mean i was i always have an open mind if there's something that's better i'm, I'm willing to listen and change my ways right oh so, well, you're a better man you're a better class. man than me <laughs> I'm sorry, because I, I was I was a snob in chiropractic school. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I, I remember one class in particular. Um, I had a friend who he was he didn't know what he wanted to do, and I was trying to convince him to be an upper cervical doctor, and he was listening to other people. And we were in this class. Um, I believe it was I believe it was just full spine diversified class, and the professor said that. Uh, microtraumas are created when you move a joint into the paraphysiological space. And the paraphysiological space is where the adjustment occurs. So this friend of mine raised his hand and he said, so you mean to tell me that every time we make an adjustment, we're creating microtraumas and multiple microtraumas make a macrotrauma? And she says, well, yes. And he says, what are we doing? And she says, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I was well, in the I back of the room. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> well, actually, I'd like to expound upon that uh, and tell you a quick story from chiropractic college. Um, and, yes, I, I guess if you ask most people in school and teachers, yeah, I was a little bit rebellious and, and one-minded and pissed off a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember this uh, particular classmate of mine he was the bodybuilder type and and uh, I was on him for six trimesters to go see Dr. Topping uh, who does Blair here down in Southern California and uh, he of course never listened and and I'll never forget this five times a week you would see he and his buddy in in one of the rooms and they'd be doing diversified adjustments on the neck left and right they'd probably you know adjust each other five or seven times a week 
literally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, come about try 10 in school. Uh, he walks into clinic one day and he's just looks like a deer in headlights and, and he had been in the hospital because he thought he had a stroke and what had happened, he was in the, uh, the shower and one side of his tongue went numb and you know, all mm. the educated pathology and diagnostic stuff we get thrown at us in school. So he of course was in the, the, the shower self-diagnosing himself and thought he was having a stroke and completely flipped out and had a panic attack, ended up in the hospital. Anyway, to make a really long story short, <laughs> for about uh, three months in clinic, uh, the guy could hardly function because he was just totally tore up with anxiety. And I finally went up to him and I said, Jeff, have you had enough? And he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean, enough? And I said, I'm going to make an appointment. I'm going to drag you down to Dr. Toppy and we're going to go fix you. <laughs> And he said, okay. And so I made the appointment, and I'm getting to my point here with what you were saying earlier. So he gets into Dr. Topping's office, and Dr. Topping takes all these x-rays on him. And uh, now I had looked at his, uh, when you first get into chiropractic calls, try one, they take a full set of x-rays because you're linked up with an intern that's in the clinic, right? And Mm -hmm. he had a lordosis and no break in George's line and his curve was probably about 35 degrees and I'll never forget this he had the x-rays taken and and Dr. Topping puts up the stereolateral in the view box and his neck is completely straight and he's got a anterolysis on C2 on 3 3 on 4 4 on 5 of about 3 to 4 millimeters hmm. and this is his jaw dropped and what he said was oh my god what I thought I was doing to help me I don't think was helping me. (laughs) And I said, I don't think so. And long story short, he got corrected, did well, and last I heard is practicing diversified. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it always goes. I'm not sure what the moral to that story is, but... (laughs) Well, um, you've you've basically... uh, told us about your first experience with upper cervical, which was your first experience with chiropractic. Um, and you t- said that you went to uh, Cleveland uh, to chiropractic school. Um, and my next question was going to be, how did you choose Blair? But you've kind of uh, already explained that. But I did want to ask you, uh, were you, and I kind of already have, if you were single-minded while you were in school, but did you ever look at uh, any other upper cervical technique and think, hmm, maybe that's the direction I want to go, or was it Blair all the way? Well, at Cleveland, there is no, was no upper cervical that was taught. So, I mean, going through school, I took Blair seminars as I went through. Um, I wasn't really exposed to too much else other than through the Internet. I was a mad Internet researcher, just... I remember coming across some of the NUCA studies on uh, leg length inequality, and I think it was in a cycling magazine and so forth. And huh. and uh, my only real experience uh, going through school with other upper cervical techniques was in the Blair seminars. And and uh, and the reason being is, that, as you may know, uh, Blair is the the system of analysis is based on the fact that uh, human beings' anatomy is asymmetrical. Yeah. Right. So um, part of the beginning, part of the Blair course is showing why using an orthogonal model on a, on a system that's not orthogonal is going to have error in it. <laughs> mm. So 
um, of course, going through that program and being exposed to 30 or 40, and again, that's not to put down AO and Nuka. I refer people out to them all the time and think they do sure. gr great work. I mean, look at the stuff that's come out of, uh, in fact, that will be a topic of discussion further along about what's going on within Upper Server Goal and mm. uh, the evolution and all that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I was fairly single-minded and, and didn't have a lot of outside influences outside of Blair, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, and having, uh, one thing I wanted to say was in uh, some of the, the beginning Blair courses, there was a student at Palmer who uh, actually got into BJ's Osteological Museum and took uh, pictures of uh, the floor of skulls, you know, where the condom foreman magnum was to mm -hmm. show because Dr. Blair came up with the fact that if you drew a sagittal line down the floor of the skull that you wouldn't because of the asymmetry issue the posterior apex of the frame and magnum sometimes is shifted off to the left or the right and it's not right down the sagittal line and sometimes you'll have a condyle as anterior on one side versus the other and and uh, uh, to prove those points these pictures were taken and it's pretty amazing uh, to see the asymmetry that exists in, in a lot of the people's bone structure. In fact, I just had a guy in the other day, his uh, lateral mass on one side on the APOM picture was half the size of the right lateral mass, and his uh, axis on one side was built up about 40% more on the left side, and he had a huge old head tilt in there. And mm -hmm. Dr. Blair talked about how because of osseous asymmetry, there's a certain percentage of people that a slight scoliosis in, in their neck may be normal for them. And mm -hmm. in fact, there's one great quote that I like. He said, uh, there's a great difference between an orthopedically straight spine and a neurologically clear spine mm -hmm. and, or a normal articulated spine. What he meant by that is because of the osseous asymmetry, uh, you could have uh, a clear, clear neurological structure and because of the osseous asymmetry have a slight scoliosis in the neck and the mid back and that may be normal for them. Yeah. I used to say when I was interning with Dr. Pierce that uh, uh, our work would be perfect if we weren't dealing with human beings. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's for uh, darn sure. Well now, uh, the system of analysis, I totally understand uh, your attraction to uh, the research, uh -huh. but what about uh, hand adjusting versus instrument adjusting? Was that just a non-factor? You know what? Uh, I'm not even sure going through school. I even knew there was an instrument adjusting as far as Atlas work was concerned. I think that probably came after. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I was pretty uh, much in the bubble going through school. I was very focused, like you said. Right. <laughs> in fact, we used to... Uh, I can say this now that I've got my diploma and graduated. We used to uh, sign in for pathology class and walk out, and five of us would go upstairs and spend our next 50 minutes practicing our toggle and our Blair adjustments and going over x-rays and so forth. That was our education. We were going to take it into our own hands. Yeah. Damn it, I'm not going to spend $80,000 and learn a bunch of nonsense I'm never going to use in school, hey, as long as I pass <laughs> the boards, right? Well, what made you in choose fact, Clayton? In evolution, I said, I, I wish I could be the president of a chiropractic college and fine, CCE mandates that you teach have to teach physical diagnosis and pathology and so forth. But what I'd like is for the teacher to stand up in front of the student 
class the first day and say this is a bunch of BS, it's good for medicine, it has nothing to do with chiropractic, but you have to learn it to pass your boards. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> well, what made you choose Cleveland? Oh boy, do you have an hour? Uh, long story <laughs> short, uh, I hope Dr. Forrest doesn't kill me for this. Uh, he was in a, a severe whiplash accident at the same time I was in an accident, and I was having trouble clearing with him. And uh, ooh, ooh. God bless him, he sent me down to see Dr. Muncie, who unfortunately passed away about a year and a half ago. Mm. And uh, uh, speaking again, a doctor who had his patient's uh, best interest in mind. Um, sent me down to see Dr. Muncie in Lancaster, and I did beautifully with them, and so much so I said, I guess I'm moving to Southern California. Mm. So basically, all of the decisions I've made in my life, other than staying in Southern California, that was because I got married, got stuck down here, but basically most of the decisions I've made in my life have been life-changing since, what is that, 19 years old have been because of upper cervical. <laughs> mm. Well, tell tell us about your early pras, practice experience. When did you graduate from school? I uh, graduated, let's see, August 2001. Uh, did you go right into practice after graduation? I did. I uh, uh, preceptored with Dr. Uh, Dan Kuhn in Huntington Beach and then got licensed I don't know, about four months later, and I stayed in his office uh, for a good three and a half years and uh, while I was in that office about eight months into working there we actually Dr. Kuhn adjusted a a gal with spasmodic torticollis who <clears throat> was Korean and uh, he was gracious enough from uh, well actually from the result of that one Korean lady about oh, 150 people started driving from uh, Los Angeles all the way to Huntington Beach and if you're not familiar with the area that's about an hour and 15 minute drive and he was so swamped he started pawning the patients off on us which as a new doctor out of school you're really happy about and uh, and one of those patients actually uh, had about 10,000 square feet up on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles and made the comment you know Drew you should really set up an office in Los Angeles and I thought to myself, I don't want anything to do with L.A. No, thank you. And, uh, oh, about two weeks later, they came back. Her husband was a dentist, and they said, well, what if we pay for everything and you just come up here and see patients? And, you know, being nine months out of school and someone offering something like that, I'm like, well, what the heck do I have to lose? <laughs> and so, of course, I did it, and that's how that practice kind of evolved up there. And that was, what, seven years later. Um, and uh, so... I was practicing out of that office two days a week and out of Dr. Kuhn's office in Huntington Beach for uh, two and a half, three days a week. And uh, I, I lived in Redondo Beach, and from Redondo to Huntington, it's an hour drive, and I, that got a little wearing, wasting two hours a day sitting in the car. I don't know if you've ever been to L.A. If you've driven the 405, you know what that's like. Hmm. And so I uh, consequently moved that practice uh up the 405 freeway about 25 minutes so now my drive's 18 minutes instead of an hour but uh working with dr coon for those of you who don't know who he is um he's on the power of upper cervical probably a lot of people know who he is but um he was back at palmer uh when bj was at the helm uh f amazing uh, upper cervical doctor 
not sure exactly how old he is, but he's still got one of the picture-perfect toggles out there, and uh, he and his wife, Clara May, was a, a pleasure to work with them. It was nice being in an office where you could trust everything that went on in there and didn't have to worry about people stealing your patients or your money because I hear so many nightmare stories out there. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it was a great environment to start out in, and of course, he couldn't be a, a better role model when it comes to upper cervical and just being a good human being in general. Do you have just one clinic right now that you practice out of? I own my clinic in the Carson Torrance area. I work out of uh, the office that we started up in Los Angeles, which was bought by Dr. Trong. Um, so I basically am an independent contract out of there. How many associates do you have working for you? Uh, right now I have uh, Dr. Rourke. She's uh, my only associate. She's been with me, gosh, I think five years. And then I have uh, two preceptor doctors, uh, one James Fuertes, who just graduated Palmer College, and then uh, Dr. Benlin, who's uh, out of LifeWest, has been through the uh, Dr. Dill's whole program. So she's pretty fired up. Yeah. But it's, it's a lot of fun having more than just yourself in the office. It can be a headache sometimes, but it's also uh, one big happy family. And and uh, when everything's going right and everyone's getting along. <laughs> <laughs> How many, you, you're married, uh, you already mentioned that earlier, and you have two children? Uh, two boys. Uh, let's see, I got uh, Billy, who is five and a half. And then Brett Jacob BJ, uh, who's two and a half. We'll see which one oh, of man. them, if not both of them, become upper cervical doctors. Hopefully, it'll be BJ. <laughs> no, hopefully, it'll be both of them. <laughs> now you got you have your hands but I've, full. I've used a little sure. different tactic because I know a lot of uh, people I've talked to. They were really like, "You got to become an upper cervical doctor. You got to become an upper cervical doctor." And my other passion is fly fishing. And so I've kind of am using reverse psychology on them. I say, you know, Dad's going fishing, but you don't really want to go. Uh, I'm gonna go to the office this day off, but you probably don't want to go to the office. This chiropractic thing's kind of a little weird. So hopefully they'll fall in the footsteps. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Do they hang out with you at the office much? Oh yeah. Yeah. I have to spend about a half hour because they destroy the place. But yeah. Uh oh. I wouldn't say an exorbitant amount of time, but they're probably in here once every two weeks, something like that. Yeah. Well, That's when the wife, on the day off, can't babysit them, and I have to take over that duty. Oh, I see. So they're in the office with you when you're seeing patients when you shouldn't be? Oh, no, no, no. No, they're, <laughs> they come in on the day off. Oh, they've been in here with patients, but... Yeah. I'll, I'll wait till they're a little older, and they'll they'll serve their purpose and be my gopher. <laughs> right. Well, how many hours a week do you work? Let's see. I'm uh, I work. Let's see. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, all day. So those are, you know, I'm in the office at eight thirty, and I'm out six thirty if I'm lucky. So you know, four ten hour days. Monday and Friday are supposed to be my days off. I'm usually in the office for four hours. I've uh, just started uh, doing what we call rainmaker days with all the associates and preceptors, uh, you know, setting up screenings. And I've 
gotten a little frustrated with preceptors and hey they can watch this they know how i feel <laughs> uh, i i basically made a manual of, of from a to z the steps that they should follow to build a successful practice and and they haven't exactly followed it so now i've come into the office and i'm browbeating them a little more and We've got, let's see, up on our schedule here, probably about 28 outside marketing events in the next six months, and they will be forced to do that. So wow. instead of playing nice guy, now we're going to rule by force, and hopefully that's going to get them to the desired destination, <sighs> which is seeing more people. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to ask you. So to answer your question, I, I'd say I probably put 50 hours in a week in the office, and anyone who is fired up about this profession knows when you leave the office it's still on your mind it's still on my mind when I wake up it's on my mind when I go to sleep um, I mean I'm uh, I guess I could say I'm obsessive compulsive about it uh, but it's it's my life and and I've always said focus is what delivers the goods in the office gets people through the door and it's passion what does it also and and I I suppose I'm somewhat consumed by it. So your next question is probably how do I balance this with family, right? <laughs> you got it. That's exactly what I was going to ask. My, my wife uh, my wife is actually one that's been instituted these rules, which is probably good for our relationship. Uh, she calls it Friday night date night. So every Friday night I'm required to take her to a restaurant. Uh, we get a babysitter. Uh, usually she goes and exercises from 3 to 5 and gets home and from five to eight we have an evening out and usually talk about upper cervical during dinner <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's her five hours a week with me and then um, we probably take uh, every uh, springtime we take about an eight-day vacation down to the tropics with the family and see my son just got done with soccer as a Monday evening practice so I always brought him to that unfortunately his games were on Saturday so I missed a great number of those but I was forced my wife to take the camcorder and record uh, those games so we could watch them on the big screen at home of course he loved that he was the soccer star right yeah. but you know I had uh, getting back to family I had an amazing father and uh, I was very active in sports and he was the coach for most of them and uh, we had a cabin in South Lake Tahoe and my connection with my father, who I really look at as uh, a brother, <laughs> was fishing, and and that's why I said I'm gingerly trying to open that door for my kids because that was my the thing I did with my father and still do. In fact, in uh, January we're going to Argentina down near Patagonia for a uh, seven day. Uh, base. It's not a guided tour, but it's a lodge, and you have your own fishing guide for the day. And untouched water, so that's going to be a lot of fun. But, yeah, having grown up, like I said, in the family I did, I try and spend as much time with the kids. I've already seen in, in their short five years that it, it goes really quick. I mean, it seems like yesterday that Billy was in his little uh, car seat and so forth, and now he's this kid running around talking back to me already. <laughs> so... I think six weeks after we were engaged, we found out my wife was pregnant, and I'll never forget. My wife said, there's no way in hell I'm getting married while I'm eight months pregnant, and so she and her mom, over about three weeks, whipped up a wedding, and 
I think it was six weeks after she found out she was pregnant, we were married, and that was... Yeah, we kind of did everything backwards. She got pregnant <laughs> before we were married. We bought a house before we were married. We started two new businesses all in one year, started two new businesses. She's a headhunter recruiter for uh, the high-tech industry. Uh, I don't know if you know what SAS program is, but statisticians and so forth. Uh, so she runs a business out of the house, which was kind of put on waylay once she got pregnant. Mm. Of course, the kids and so forth took precedence. She's starting to pick that up a little bit. Yeah. But it's it's easy when your husband brings home the bacon, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So tell, you mentioned just a minute ago about uh, 28 different marketing um, activities that you guys have planned. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you market your practice. Um, well, the way I started out, and I'll get to that in a minute, which is basically the same thing we're doing, um, what worked for me was screening. Uh, I I know I've heard people at different talks say, you know, it's what no other profession has doctors stand out in front of Rite Aid or a health food store to try and jump up, drum up business. And my response has always been, there's a hell of a lot of people that are in my office that are darn glad that I was standing out in front of Rite Aid or a Whole Foods Market or Henry's or some of the other places that we had done. So largely, uh, it's through screening that we have built the practice and then obviously when you get results you get referrals so um you know the we uh when i moved my practice up into the torrance carson area we established a relationship with a store called relax the back um it's an ergonomic store they have zero gravity uh, chairs and so forth and and eventually got to know the managers and they let us in there and got her under care who actually she's now my one of my front office ladies. Um, so, you know, through that relationship, we were able to go over there and put up a sign and come in four hours a week or whatever it was at the time and, and talk to their clients. So, I mean, it's, it was in, there's my office phone going off. Um, as far as marketing the practice, I mean, you need to be in areas that are targeted for what we're looking for and relax the back. 90% of the people that go in there are there because they're completely messed up and they're looking for an ergonomic solution when we know that's not going to solve the problem. <laughs> um, and, and we also uh, set up a relationship with Henry's Market, which I think was just bought by Whole Foods not too long ago. Um, go there once a month. Associates will be doing that. And this may sound kind of weird, but we just uh, anywhere there's people to talk to, um, it's worth doing. We have two big banners. Uh, uh, which are part of the upper cervical health centers, um, which stand about eight feet tall. They have uh, Dr. Clark's pictures on there with the head tilted. Oh, if that phone keeps ringing. Um, and so, you know, at the screening, we have the eye catcher, and people come over and talk to you, and you tell them the, the upper cervical story and sign them up. That's largely how we've done the practice. Mm -hmm. Oh, so one of the things I was getting at is we uh, recently did the, the Rose Bowl. Uh, which is a huge, uh, higher-end swap meet down here in Los Angeles. You know, it costs a hundred bucks. There's twenty thousand people that go through the place, and and uh, it's once a month. And only downside is you got to wake up at five in the morning. One other thing we do is uh, what we call dinner with Doc, and uh, uh, we do this with relax the back. We 
basically offer a free dinner. We put on a PowerPoint presentation for about 25 minutes. We also show about the first 10 minutes of the power of upper cervical. And of course, uh, there's always certain patients in your practice who um, are ticked off because someone won't listen to them and they've been trying to get them in the office for six months or a year or what, what, whatever it may be. And a lot of times by them saying, hey, you know, there's this free dinner, relax the back, and they're giving a presentation, and I guess that way the person doesn't feel like they're being cornered as badly. But they get in front of me for 25 minutes, they're cornered in my PowerPoint presentation. Uh, but uh, so that's been another uh, marketing tool. We do that uh, uh, four times a year, and uh, it's very successful. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, earlier you mentioned how um, when you see a patient and everything's fine, you just tell them you got to let innate uh, do its job. Um, there's nothing to adjust. Uh, have you done that from the very beginning? Have you done that from uh, the very beginning of practicing? Yes. And do you, I mean, you're going to run into all kinds of patients for sure. But oh, by yeah. that by that point, have you educated them such that it is no big deal to tell them that, or do you tick off some patients and they, you know, go well? I'm going to go somewhere else, and then they end up back in your office anyway because somebody else that they well, went to screwed them up. But as you know, uh, there's some patients. No matter how much you educate and get through their head, they still won't get it yeah uh, but yeah I mean in the consultation before I ever adjust someone I make it very clear what our objective is um, and that the medical doctors and everyone else out there in the healthcare industry is treating symptoms and that I point to the Clark poster and I explain to them you know the whole above down inside out thing and I make it very clear to them that symptoms are effects of malfunctions in the body and my job as an upper cervical doctor is to focus on the relationship of the top two vertebrae and the relationship to the neurologic system and and I make it clear that a large percentage of the patient patients going through the first few weeks of care are not going to be completely symptomatically clear and that they've got to go through a healing process and they're going to probably come in many times in the beginning and still have symptoms and they may be clear on the test and if the vertebra is clear and is not locked out of position I'm not going to adjust you just for fun <laughs> and we're not going to adjust you just to try and get your symptoms to change we're only going to adjust you when there's nerve pressure um, so yeah I mean there's always a certain percentage of people no matter how much you explain to them how long they still aren't going to get it and my favorite thing is when second visit you run through that whole spiel again and and you think they've gotten it, and you say, okay, well, have a great day. We'll see you in whatever their next scheduled appointment is. And they say, well, you're not going to adjust me? <laughs> and then I go through another rendition, and, and then if they still are like that, I say, okay, would you rather you just come in here? I don't run any scientific tests on you. I don't ask you anything, and I lay you down on the table and just adjust your atlas every time you come in here with no testing. Is that what you want? Or how about this? You tell me when you think I should adjust you. If that's how you want your care delivered, then <laughs> that's how we'll take care of you. And that usually solves the problem. <laughs> but, you know, some people are thick at it. And I understand it's not fun to be in pain and have things go on. But my job is to clear the upper neck 
and you know as well as I do, if they come in, they're balanced on all the objective tests. If they stay that way, they're going to get better. Yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. If you if you know that you've cleared that patient and your tests are checking out clear, I have no qualms, no problems whatsoever to look them in the eye and say, you know what, you're clear, and nature's going to get the job done. Hang in there and get back, get your butt in here the next appointment. Let's check you again. Yeah. You know, I love. I guess that goes back to having conviction and passion, and uh, for the principle. Um, you know, I also say to my patients. Uh, sometimes maybe I shouldn't say this, but I tell them. I say, if if you don't respond in my office, it's either one of two things: you're doing something really stupid after we're correcting you and knocking yourself back out of position, or the doctor isn't getting the job done. Mm. And and I just spoke at Palmer, and that was one of the things that I harped on. There's nothing that makes me more angry than when I get a patient in that's been told by a chiropractor that they aren't a chiropractic case instead of saying, you know what, I just wasn't getting the job done, maybe you should go somewhere else. Yeah. And and I think that that's a, that's a tough stance to take, but it's the truth, and I'll tell you a, a story on that. I was in practice eight months. In fact, it's the the husband of the uh, uh, the lady that actually got me up in Koreatown. He was a dentist. He had a, a low back surgery uh, 40 years prior, and when he was standing, he was, you know, listed off to the side about 30 degrees, and he had horrible back pain. The guy couldn't walk more than two blocks without horrible pain, and, and long story short, I corrected him, and within four weeks, everything cleared out, and he was doing beautifully, and about I don't know, three months into care, he came in, and he was off on all the indicators, and I adjusted his atlas the same way that he was out of alignment on the x-ray, and he came back uh, five days later, and the objective tests were still showing he's off, and I adjusted him again, and when this went on about three times, I finally took a new set of pictures, and he showed the same thing, and adjusted him again, and anyway, long story short, he wasn't clearing out, he went up to see Dr. Muncie, Dr. Muncie adjusted him the exact same way that I did, and uh, within three weeks, everything cleared right back out again. And that was a, a, and I always took this stance, even when I was young in practice. But that was a clear message that the principle isn't wrong; it's you were failing the patient. Hmm. I liked what Stan Pierce said. He said, "You know, the the patient is the consumer, and they will fire you if you don't do your job." Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. Sometimes they'll fire you even when you do your job, but. Yeah. Now, I know that but that's... I, I think that uh, part of my topic at Palmer was uh, uh, I split the I called it the great divide you know BJ talked about the great divide that we have a philosophical divide in our profession and that that we have one side of the profession that would like to do away with the subluxation and that the innate philosophy is dead and it's just a bunch of quacky hogwash and that we should be subjected to a musculoskeletal fixation functional assessment model right mm -hmm. and then you have us on the other side who I call the innatist and the subluxation and I called them uh, fixated on their fixation um, <laughs> but I, I said to the three or five hundred people that were there I said if you're in the fixation camp and you've been in practice there's one reason that you're there and it's not because chiropractic is wrong it's because you failed your patients in the principle mm -hmm. and as a consequence because you didn't get the result you've tried to change the chiropractic philosophy to meet your failure. Mm. And that's really the bottom line. That's that's why our profession has gone that way. If you're not doing specific work and clearing people out, you're not going to see our principle unlocked in your patient. Yeah. 
And uh, so, anyway, I guess that's enough on that. So don't blame chiropractic. Look yourself. Look at the mirror. If you ain't getting the job done, look in the mirror. Try and find another way. And I, I remember Stan Pierce saying, if they have a trouble case, I'll refer to the dad and how he was so proud. Uh, one day when his dad had a trouble case and he referred it to him and he saw something a little different and corrected him, the, the case cleared out. But always remember our objective is to, to change that patient's life and keep them clear as long as possible. Yeah. I, I love what Dr. Muncy used to say. He used to say every patient that comes into my office, I treat them as if they were my mom or my father or my child. I know that's what uh, Dr. Dill, uh, he talks about it. He, he describes it as a, uh, a linear model versus a vertical model. And uh, the medical, I can, I can never remember which is which, but, uh, oh, the medical community has a vertical model. And if they can't get it right, they say, well, I'll refer you to this uh, other exactly. medical doctor. And we say, uh-huh. uh, you're not a chiropractic case. You, know, you, you need to go see your medical doctor because I couldn't fix you. And one of the things right. that he would definitely love to see change is, you know, that view of our profession. Most professions' problems uh, are no, their own fault. Uh-huh. Hey, I love the case studies that uh, you present. Uh, well, you're not presenting them, but uh, Dr. Forrest publishes them quite frequently, and they're always fantastic. Uh-huh. And um, I... I I just wanted well, they're you to happening talk- in all the upper cervical offices across the nation. It just happens that I talk to him four or five times a week. I call him my second father. So, <laughs> uh, okay. So, so of course, talking to him, the, what you do is you're excited about what's happened. And so I blabbed him about all the fantastic things that have happened in the office. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so th- you don't have like an uh, official way of collecting uh, your case studies. I don't have a no official way. Okay. It's just as off the cuff of my memory of what's transpired that week in the office. Um, do you mind sharing a couple of your favorites? Favorites? Uh, well, I can just start with recently because just like most of us who do this work, there's so many things that happen, it's hard to narrow them down. Uh, probably my favorite one in the last two, three weeks was... Uh, this 29-year-old male who came in. Actually, I'll tell you how he was referred into the office. I had uh, this guy, about 70, come in with uh, emphysema, 20 years of emphysema. In fact, you probably read this in Dr. Force. Actually, maybe you've read both of these in Dr. Force email. Uh, but he, 20 years of emphysema, the guy is so bad just to get from the waiting room into the adjusting room. I mean, he's had to stop, you know, five or six times, and it's no more than 40 feet. But, uh, you know, in the adjusting room, if you're in the front office, you literally could hear him uh, breathing. And from my pathology class, I remember they talk about rails. It was abundantly clear what rails meant uh, with this particular emphysema patient because it was just... (laughs) And his scalenes and upper thoracic muscles are five times overdeveloped because he's recruiting them to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him, I said, you know, you've had this 20 years. I'm sure there's all sorts of scar tissue in there. We'll get you clear, and we'll see what nature can do. And uh, yeah, it was, God, four months ago, and he's held his correction very well. I think I've adjusted him maybe three times, two or three times over a four- or five-month period, and his breathing 60% better. So long story short, he's a 
a particular practitioner. He sent a lot of people our way, and uh, this 29-year-old came in who uh, fell off the couch headfirst into a marble coffee table when he was five years old, and of course that will impact your upper neck. <laughs> And his whole life, he's had severe, severe cognitive issues and uh, severe, severe depression, like suicidal depression. And his family does not buy into the medical model. He's never been on any antidepressants. Um, but it's been to the point where he is unable to uh, read. His cognitive function is just a nightmare. And Anyway, uh, prior to coming in, into our office, he got to a, uh, a neurofeedback specialist. And basically what they do is they would monitor uh, what they call coherence. That's how uh, similar uh, the frontal lobe brainwave activity is left and right. And a normal brain will have what they call 80% coherence, which means brainwave activity is within 80% left and right. When he got in there eight years ago, he was uh, 20%. So it's a little bit of a problem. And, hmm. and uh, so what they did is they hooked up cables to the, or pick up cables to the, the frontal lobe area to measure brainwave activity and, and then did uh, certain sensory input to the system to try and uh, rework the neuropathways. And, and they got him up to about uh, 40. <laughs> and that lifted his depression to a point where he didn't feel like killing himself every day, but, you know, it's still there. Hmm. And... Uh, his mom started care after him and she said you know I used to go to bed many nights hoping that I, when I woke up there that my son was there mm. and, and obviously I think as being a parent now that's not a very good feeling I'm sure mm. and so anyway long story short we uh, got him corrected the very next day uh, he went to the neurofeedback specialist and they put the uh, pickup on the frontal lobe area and turned the computer on and the lady looked at him and looked at the computer screen and looked back at him and looked at the computer screen and said, you know, something's not right here. And so she turned off the computer and rebooted the whole system and went through the whole shebang again. And, and she said, Alex, uh, your coherence is 85. And so, well, of course, he told her what had happened. Of course, she was impressed. And, uh, I mean, the kid, he was just in on uh, Saturday and he's doing beautifully. Hmm. Uh, his depression is coming back. In fact, I loaned him one of my green books because I told him he's going to be an upper cervical chiropractor someday. <laughs> I've done this to several of my patients, and it's come true on a few of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> Planting the seed. Uh, you, you don't. But, I mean, like I. Huh? I, I was just going to say, you, you, don't, uh, uh, you don't in any way officially record. Uh, I mean, these are basically testimonials. I'm calling them case studies, but right. they're basically really fantastic testimonials, but we can call them case studies and use them whichever way we want. You don't have a, a way of recording those and using them for I mean, marketing purposes? I notes and so forth, but it's kind of like when you ask me, uh, you know, do you have an hour and a half once a week to do these interviews? I can hardly <laughs> even keep up with my own stuff right now. Sure. So, I mean, being president of the Blair Society and answering 75 emails a day and having kids and two practices and so forth. Yeah, I was. I just had a chiropractor in my office today who came in with Bell's palsy. Uh, and I was telling him, I said, my dream going forward, once I have enough capital, is I'm going to hire a full-time researcher in the office. 
and uh, we're going to bang these things out one at a time and put an ad in the newspaper for lupus mm -hmm. and then get those people in the office, maybe 20 of them, uh, run them through a complete blood workup and a bunch of medical tests, have them come in for care and test them along the way and, and publish that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it's something that needs to be done. I, I know we're not all about symptoms and diseases, but uh, look what one study did that, uh, and that type of research wouldn't be as powerful as what Dr. Dick Holtz has done, but look at what one research thing has done. Yeah. You know, once we have the data that backs up what we do, it's not just us clinically saying, hey, we had this and this and this happen, a patient shooting their mouth off and a documentary movie being made, but we'll be able to go into the profession and the, the presence of colleges and say, what in the hell are you guys doing here? Come on, <laughs> let's get on the game and start teaching what chiropractic really is. <laughs> In fact, I've heard that Dick Holt's studies kind of derailed some of the uh, mixer fixation people's agenda of destroying our innate uh, principles and, you know, kind of where we came from. Is that Because right? there wasn't a lot of data there. Excuse me? I just, I, I, I didn't realize that. I was just saying it. Uh, uh, I didn't realize that. Uh, I, I've always kind of poo pooed. Skinny on that. <laughs> uh, say that again. I said, uh, Doctor Kirk Erickson is into all that end of it, and he could tell you a heck of a lot more than I am privy to. <laughs> well, I've always kind of um, not thumbed my nose or sneezed at peer-reviewed studies, but I've always felt like peer-reviewed studies were the holy grail that. Uh, nobody would ever achieve and I, I just always I thought a lot of time was wasted on them and a lot of really um, good information that would benefit our customers if you will was ignored because it was not peer-reviewed and um, right but I mean if the Dick Holtz study is derailing some of these um, camps that are trying to derail us then obviously there is a serious value to peer-reviewed studies that i, was well, just I mean reacting. i'm with you the the research doesn't change anything that's going in our office but i i do think that it it'd be a valuable aid within the school system we'd have more clout to say hey what are you guys doing here mm. you know i mean i just went to cleveland Chiro this is three years ago with cleveland chiropractic college i remember i was driving up to speak and they got this big banner on the the front of the school and it says research project uh, free treatment for I think it was uh, uh, degeneration in the hip joint and then I got to the front door and they have like what the treatment modality is and adjustments about the last thing on the rung oh, man. You know, I mean, what, what's that about <laughs> but as you know I mean that's where unfortunately a, a large section of our profession is headed and, and I, I also said at Palmer and I would love to have this happen to get some of these people who are in positions of power and that want to drive our, our profession down that road, I'd like them to come into an upper cervical office for a week and watch what happens, and I'll bet you'd blow their lid off a little bit and maybe change their thinking. But yeah. who knows? Maybe yeah. they have other agendas. Maybe I'm a little naive. <laughs> uh, well, what is your impression of the uh, unification movement that seems to be going on in upper cervical right now with the evolution and... Uh, tell me what you think about all that. Obviously, I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, that's why I joined. I didn't join UCHC to because uh, I needed a bigger practice. I joined UCHC because I 
I think it's an essential component uh, for upper cervical in general. I mean, we're not going to accomplish much by staying in our own camps and and we don't have much clout when there's 30 of us, right? Right. Uh, powers and numbers and and I think regardless of what upper cervical technique you do, as long as you hold to that and are doing upper cervical, uh, that we're all uh, delivering the the same product and 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 I mean I think it's an essential part to politically uh, moving forward and I think as this gets out there and the larger documentary comes out we're going to have some people that are breathing down our neck and if we don't have some unity um, going forward we're going to be pretty easy to pick off mm. right now I'm not I don't think that we're I'm not worried about the medical profession it's I think our our biggest trouble is our own profession. <laughs> mm. uh, who is your Atlas doctor? I, I see Dr. Kuhn down in Huntington Beach, who, as I talked about earlier, I worked with for three and a half years. Mm. Good, me, good uh, guy, as what... I already stated, and a darn good upper cervical doctor. That's why I go to him. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, when I have trouble cases, that's where I send them. <laughs> You know, he sent me. He fixes my problem. Okay. I, I told you that. Uh, oh, that? I, I told you that I uh, publish a newsletter for upper cervical doctors to send to their patients. Uh -huh. And uh, right. about a year or so ago, he sent me one that uh, he used to send out years ago. It was an old one. Um, anyway, he is a very nice guy. That's the only contact I've ever had with him. But he was very nice. He sent me this uh, uh, this old newsletter that he used to send his patients, like back in the. 50s or 60s it was an old one and uh anyway he is a very nice guy not all i mean you want to talk about someone who's dead been dedicated to this principle his whole life and uh he's one of those rare guys where it's not about him it's about moving this thing forward i mean in fact he's what in his upper 70s he didn't need to join uchc yeah. but uh he did it because he believes in uh, the larger mission of uh, what's trying to be accomplished there so yeah I mean it's a great movement it's going to be very interesting to see where all this heads in the next five and ten years speaking of because which, as you know it's 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 exploding and and uh, there's more and more interest coming in out of the schools and I get emails every week and I'm sure Dr. Forrest gets five times as many emails as I get every week but um, and and I think that that's uh, one of the arenas getting back to research I think Dr. Dick's Holt study uh, raises eyebrows uh, when it's presented in school and, and outside practitioners see that. Of course, they say, well, I adjust the atlas too, but uh, I think that's an, an essential component in getting more people involved in, in what we're doing. Yeah. As you know, the more people we have out there doing this work, the, the better it is for all of us. Yeah. As long as they're doing it right. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> the big conundrum isn't it right sticking to that upper neck and not monkeying around with all those other effects stick to it <laughs> what are some of the uh, threats that you see um, that upper cervical is going to be facing in the next few years well I can just tell you things that have happened a couple of things I mean the biggest one I see happening already is as this movement gets bigger and uh, you're going to get a lot of regular chiropractors jumping on the bandwagon. I have people in Los Angeles uh, advertising themselves as upper cervical 
doctors and they're doing anything but upper cervical in their office. So, mm. I mean, I think that that's something that has the potential to derail what we're doing. You know, what happens when someone hears about it and then they go into a so-called upper cervical office and the, the results don't get delivered and that kind of muddies up what's going on. But, I mean, that certainly isn't a reason to to stop uh, this thing going forward and keeping it in this little circle where we have 30 people that are practicing it so this doesn't happen. I, I don't know what the answer to, is to that, but I think one of them is kind of what Greg Buchanan has done, and that's having a website that's centralized where you have uh, new doctors that say they're doing upper cervical where there's a verification process that goes through. I know when there's a new Blair doctor that's put on this site, it's uh, run through Dr. Forrest or myself. You know, he always says, you know this person, what exactly are they doing? Mm. Um, but, I mean, there's no real way to to police what's going on there. I think what we do is in all the techniques where there's nuclear Blair or orthospinology or AO, uh, you live as an example, you do the work right, and then you try and draw as many people into that as possible. And I see uh, one of the things that's necessary going forward is a lot of the field docs out there that are, are really good at what they do. You, they need to take students out of school and mentor them and bring them through a preceptor program and and show them that you can indeed do straight, specific upper cervical work and nothing else and, and have a thriving, successful practice and and have a lot of fun at it. I think uh, one of the things that happens to students is if they haven't had the experience I've had and and are rooted in it, um, you know, they get derailed out there in practice and maybe they aren't 100% convinced in the principle and and they get swayed by a patient that comes in and say, you know, my back hurts a little bit. Isn't there something you can do for that? The second visit, and once they go down that road, they're done. Mm. And so there needs to be some support network um, going forward, and I think some of that is starting to take shape. Um, I know within the Blair Society at our last board meeting, one of the things was, because I, I know in my own practice, anybody who's a student that's come through and watched, they've been more upper cervically inclined and I've had some preceptor doctors in here who are now in practice that are doing straight upper cervical work which I mean is what we need. We need people sticking to it and not muddying up the waters and doing it the way it's supposed to be done and doing all the quality control that Dr. Pierce talked about and the slipping and checking and so forth. Um, but I mean we could talk about what needs to be done for probably another hour. <laughs> <laughs> well if you so, had I mean, to start... that, that's one of the threats would be, you know, people out there advertising they're doing upper cervical that aren't really doing it. And uh, and I think as as things get bigger, and we're nowhere near this yet, but, uh, you know, getting attacks from, from the powers that be out there that would don't want you to get too big because you're going to take away some of their bottom line. We're nowhere near that yet. Yeah. Um, but I... I th- that's coming in and I can tell you a couple of things that happened down here in Southern California recently an upper cervical doc got a letter from the uh, district attorney and it was either a disgruntled patient or a jealous chiropractor in town or and you know he got turned in for saying that upper cervical has been known to respond to and you know had about 30 different symptoms and he got a letter from the district attorney saying you prove that uh 
the upper cervical helps with every one of these symptoms. Otherwise, you're getting a twenty-five hundred dollar fine uh, for for each infraction. Mm. Of course, that's probably never fun to get in the mail. But an attorney has defended him, and he's won that part of the case. Yeah. So, you... I mean, I, I can tell you already some of the things I've heard through the grapevine. My practice in Koreatown is is pretty well known, and, and I take care of quite a few students from Cleveland Chiropractic, and I had a student come in about a year and a half ago, and he overheard a Korean clinician in Cleveland Chiropractic College saying to another clinician, you know, that Dr. Hall is brainwashing the whole Korean community. We need to get rid of that guy. You know, so as we get bigger and, and more known and you run a successful practice and there's people that don't necessarily agree with you telling the public that you can help them with lupus and different things and so forth, you've got a big target on your back and you better be ready to defend them uh. or defend yourself. I, you... I was talking to Ray, Dr. Drury the other day and uh, he was telling me that his office manager pulled out this file uh, old file of his and it was all the board complaints that he had against them and one of them was that you know Dr. Drury ran a very successful practice and still does and now he runs 48 of them but <laughs> uh, one of the board letters was that he wasn't allowed to call his practice advanced chiropractic because that was one of his names that, or no maybe it was no, a specific chiropractic because by using the word specific he was um, making himself appear as though he was better than someone who just had chiropractic in their name. Yeah. And yeah. so what he did is he went around town and he took pictures of um, clinics that said advanced pain chiropractic and there was another couple that were specific and he wrote them back and sent the pictures and said I'm not changing my name until you have all these clinics change their name too and ironically one of those uh, clinics that he took the picture of was one of the board members in that particular state. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the bottom line is is we need to uh, toe a certain line and, and run our practices ethically and, and be able to defend anything that comes our way going forward. Well, I ran into the exact same thing. if you're doing everything the way it's supposed to be done, you should be able to defend yourself, right? We shouldn't have to, but it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I ran into the exact same thing in Florida. That, in Florida. I think that that's one of the... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I keep talking yeah. over you. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, anyway, uh, I think that that's one of the missions of the Upper Cerebral Health Centers is, is getting big enough to and having enough capital to where you have some jerk off in your community that turns you in. You got the DA against you, and you find yourself in a little hot water, and you got a. 500 clinics that donate 100 bucks and you got enough money to write a stern letter and I mean we have some clout to defend ourselves mm. um, and, I, and you brought it up it's definitely going to be an issue going forward yeah. not yet <laughs> if you had to start all over again uh, from scratch knowing what you know now is there anything that you would do differently huh yeah I mean I've never had any practice management experience. I build a big practice on passion and not much brains. <laughs> now I was lucky to have an associate doctor with me who worked up in Dr. Lennar's office through the five-star system, a star Dr. Wolf's office, and so we've implemented most of that stuff in the office uh, several years ago. But, I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I 
think that the UCHC system is great having you know the nuts and bolts in place before you even open your doors that's a, a great advantage uh, but I mean I've done fine and I've run the practice pretty much the way that I want it without much outside interference yeah. I probably would have done uh, myself notes a lot different and as I've gotten further into practice and realize you're you kind of have a target on your back I've have a lot more paperwork in place and have up my malpractice premium and made sure things that we run out in the public are uh, within normal limits <laughs> so right. to speak right but uh, from a patient management standpoint you know I wouldn't do anything different um, just try and do the best darn job you can and get as many sick people better as possible. That's really the bottom line. Hmm. Uh, what me. do you regard as your greatest upper cervical chiropractic achievement to date? Wow. Uh, I mean, it's result, patient results. That's what it is for me. Hmm. Um, every week, those... There's not... I was in... Uh, I think it was uh, ten, or Nashville, Tennessee... My wife was in the front row, and I've said this more than once when I speak because it's true. <clears throat> I say there's not a better feeling in the world when you have someone who's sick uh, that comes in your office that's desperate, that's been to 50 doctors, that's on 15 different medications, and you do something that's completely non-invasive and unlock that atlas and watch your whole life turn around. For me, that's that's it. That's the bottom line. And And each time that that happens in my office, that's really the greatest accomplishment. And I think that's the the whole lifeblood of upper cervical. So I personally really could give a damn about accolades and so forth. <laughs> well, my next question was going to be, what do you love about what you do? But I think you've just answered it. But you're uh, more than welcome <laughs> to expound on that if you want to. Yeah, well, uh, I can remember several times my coming home. And I've told Dr. Forrest this, coming home many times I call him at the end of the day because you feel like you're floating on clouds because so many lives have changed and my wife has said many times god i just wish i could find something uh that where i get as excited about it as you do about upper cervical it's not every single morning but i mean most mornings i wake up and it's the first thing that comes to mind is getting into that office and uh, getting the people that are out of alignment clear and leaving the ones alone let that process keep going. I mean, it's really fulfilling, and that's why you see so many of the upper cervical docs that are, I mean, does Dr. Dick Holtz need to be doing what he's doing at his age? Of course not. What about Dr. Kuhn? Does he need to be practicing? Heck no. Uh, you know, it's just uh, it's, it's enjoying the process of seeing sick people get better, and it's a really rewarding process. Of course, there's people that come in the office that you like to kick back out the front door, and there's things you have to deal with. Thank God I run a cash practice, so I don't have to deal with insurance companies and so forth. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's a really rewarding experience. I, that epiphany I had 18 years ago was, uh, was a great epiphany, and I'm glad I listened and followed through because it was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. If you could change one thing about the... Uh curriculum and chiropractic colleges what would you change one thing no it doesn't have to be one thing how about two <laughs> things <laughs> well i mean if it had to be one thing it's get all the other garbage out there and start teaching chiropractic which is upper cervical <laughs> have the core curriculum be focused around the upper neck 
than neurology, and that's where the focus should be. Get rid of all this other nonsense ancillary stuff that has a time and a place in other professions but doesn't in ours. Um, I mean, I get rid of all the pathology. I get rid of all the physical diagnosis, and I focus on straight, pure, unadulterated, above, down, inside, out, B.J. Palmer chiropractic. I mean, what B.J. said, he said he'd rather take a, a – can't remember what the term he used. Someone out of an uh, uh, indigenous person out of the jungle and teach them chiropractic because they don't have a bunch of educated nonsense blocking it all out. <laughs> you know, we have lovers of education in our profession, not lovers of wisdom. Yeah. And uh, a person who has wisdom recognizes that this nervous system uh, controls and coordinates every function in your body, and that's what runs the show. And if you uh, remove nerve interference to its function it's going to function the way it's supposed to and get out of the way you know nothing more nothing less what did bj palmer say it's as simple as that it's so darn simple people don't get it yeah i my other favorite quote which i just wrote a a blog about it's the simple confounds the wise Mm. right simple things are usually what work yep it's all the or here's another way of putting it. Patients say, well, what do you think about nutrition? And I say, well, if it has more than about five ingredients, don't eat it. You know, you go to the store and you pick up certain things and they have about 75 ingredients in there. And you're like, oh, that can't possibly be good for me. Yeah. So I would apply that same simplistic procedure to any aspect of your life, whether it's health care or finances or whatever. Keep That's actually a great way of looking at it. The fewer ingredients, the better. Yeah, exactly. What advice? What I would say to go that line is, uh, you know, the more focused you are on on upper cervical, the better your results are going to go or become. I find the more pinpointed my consciousness is on that one thing, the better results are. The more referrals. It's just what it's all about. The and I've said this many times when I speak the more things you start adding in in your clinic that start taking your focus away from that atlas, the worse you're going to be at doing atlas work. Mm. And I always say the atlas is hard enough to get it right on 100% of your people. Until you can get it right on 100% of your people, then you can start monkeying around with other stuff. But ask Dr. Dick Holtz, he's probably not there either. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. He might tell you who he is. Yeah, he might. (laughs) Oh, man, I listened to him at Evolution. He was great. (laughs) He, well, he's allowed to have uh, his, his attitude and the way he looks at things. Man, he's dedicated his whole life. He gets great results, and God bless him. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, I, I, I said this to you in an email earlier, that <clears throat> um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do something with you on a fairly regular basis is because if there's one thing we can say about you is you're a man of principle, and uh you stick to your guns. Um, having said that, my next question was, what advice do you have for chiropractic students? And what advice do you have for young doctors? Uh, do you have anything else other than uh, what you've said? Oh, yeah. I mean, the number one thing that I see with students that come out of school is they have the mentality that they already know everything. And unfortunately, what happens to those types is they fall flat on their face. So, I mean, the best thing you can do is be humble. Mm. And I don't care whether you've been in practice for 30 or 40 years. Be humble about what you do. Realize you don't know everything and and get into someone's office who's doing straight work 
and absorb as much as you can, stay in that office until you're competent, and then go replicate what they do back out there in the field and do the same thing with a student in your office. That's how we're going to grow. Um, read the green books and uh, just stick to the principles. As simple as that. Stay focused. Focus is what delivers results and success in your office. Mm-hmm. Stay focused on that one thing, and that one thing is clear in the atlas, and if it's clear, leave it alone. Uh, you know, B.J. Palmer talked about slipping and checking. I've been doing this eight years, and I slip, and and you know when you've slipped, when you start not getting results, figure out what it is and get back on track. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a, it's a continually evolving process. Uh, doing upper cervical re- work reminds me of when I played baseball and uh, the the fundamentals of a, a baseball swing and and how you would get in a groove and you couldn't miss right line drive after line line drive and all of a sudden something goes awry and and you've lost it and and so the adjustment is it's this cyclic procedure and this might be uh, where although I imagine it still happens with the machine guys but one of their arguments is that's more of a reproducible adjustment um, and takes out the human element but I mean when I was in school one of the things I would say to the students if you're not practicing your adjustment or an hour or two a day you ain't doing enough mm. you know I, I always pick Tiger Woods and, and I always argue with anyone that what we do is the most important thing on the planet it's a hell of a lot more important than what Tiger Woods does or what Michael Jordan did or or some of these athletes and if we're professionals and we're dealing with life and we're dealing with the most important thing the health wise that's the upper neck then why aren't you focusing on why aren't you honing your skills why aren't you going to seminars and uh, continually you know I don't care if you've been in practice 20 years should still be attending seminars there's always things that uh, we slip on and and I, I still beat on my toggle board in my office or at my house when I've got time. I can remember in, in school I lived up in uh, Valencia in a single wide uh, uh, mobile home <laughs> on this farm or not farm property. It's a pretty big property. There's a lot of open land. I get 105 degrees in there, and I remember beating that board to death and just be drenched in sweat. You know, I didn't have air conditioner in there. Uh, but that's what it takes. I mean, if you want to be Dr. Dick Holtz or Dr. Kuhn or Dr. Forrest or some of these guys who are masters of what they do, they sure as hell didn't have it happen by sitting on their duff and watching. Uh, there's one last great quote that I'd like to leave on on this subject, and Dr. Forrest uh, wraps up a lot of his seminars with this story about this guy who was watching B.J. Palmer making a correction, and he said, B.J., you know, I'd give my life to make an adjustment the way that you do and BJ turned around looked at him and said I did so again if you want to be good at what you do you better be dedicated to it and you ain't going to do it by focusing on it halfway you may be halfway good but I mean it it takes focus Mm -hmm. and dedication if um, doctors would like to get in touch with you uh, for uh, any reason um uh, what is the best way for them to do that? I, I You said that you have a blog. Uh, I'll make this real easy. They won't even need to write this one down. Uh, my email address is subluxationskill at hotmail.com. Uh-huh. So that's, I'm, I'm on email 
I have to be on email four times a day, otherwise my inbox will explode. So <laughs> that would be the best way to get a hold of me. What is your blog? What's your address? Oh, my, I don't even know. My, pre <laughs> my preceptor doctor just set up a blog. Like I said earlier, I'm technically inept. Uh. And so she just started a blog and I wrote it in an email format and sent it over to her. So I don't know what the blog is. <laughs> I, email me. I can send it to you, though. <laughs> well, listen, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you doing this. No problem. Hopefully someone will listen that isn't an upper cervical doctor and it will inspire them to do this work and change some lives. Here's another bonus for upper cervical doctors. If you go to my website at www.uppercervicaldocs.com slash blog and uh, you'll see the um, different categories uh, in my blog there but if you click on upper cervical marketing and scroll until you find the article titled five fun ways to get more patients from the web uh, this is uh, based on a talk that I gave at the local chamber of commerce and uh, there is a, a slideshow that I've embedded into that post with audio and if you just scroll down and click on the uh, embedded uh, video that you see there uh, it'll run through the entire presentation and this will show you five ways that you can use the internet to get more patients um, and uh, it doesn't uh, the five ways that I show you don't doesn't even require that you have a website um, and I tell you how to do that in there uh, of course if you have a website this will get more traffic to your page uh, to your website but um, the the techniques that I uh, demonstrate in this slide presentation don't even require you to have a website. So once again, it's www.uppercervicaldocs.com slash blog and click on Upper Cervical Marketing, uh, which you'll see in the uh, navigation menu, um, third line down from the top. Uh, go have a look at that, and uh, I hope it helps you.